baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month, powered by 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. I loved getting my hair braided when I was a kid. Dozens of braids flowing from my scalp with at least five colorful beads on the ends of each braid. Whenever someone would call my name, I would whip my head around with the most force and the most speed a child could muster, just so everyone could hear the clinking of my beads. Did the beads sometimes leave welts on my face? Sure did, but every black girl I knew did this. There's a shared experience of having black hair. Many of us sat on the floor for hours, staring at the TV between a loved one's legs as they braided our hair. Or we spent Sunday afternoons bent over the kitchen sink so someone could wash our hair and straighten it for the week. Black hair can be a political statement, a statement of pride, or just a style. It is, however, a multi-billion dollar industry. A 2021 Nielsen report found African-Americans are 2.4 times more likely to buy hair products compared to other shoppers. In what's called the ethnic hair market, African-Americans brought in more than 85% of the revenue. But black folks aren't reaping the financial rewards. Between beauty supply stores, distributors, and products, there were few black owners. Juxtapose that to America's first self-made millionaire. She was a black woman, and she made her money off hair. In this episode of Beyond Black History Month, we will explore the legacy of Madam C.J. Walker. We will also dig into why the majority of black beauty supply shops aren't owned by black people. Last, we will meet a new generation of black women, inspired by Madam C.J. Walker and carving out a space for themselves. Madam C.J. Walker went from earning $1.50 a day doing laundry to becoming a millionaire philanthropist and civil rights activist. I'm delighted to see that you are doing what you're doing. That's Alelia Bundles. She's Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter and biographer. Walker was born in December of 1867, just two years after the end of the Civil War. She wasn't born into an easy life. Madam C.J. Walker started life as Sarah Breedlove on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, on the Mississippi River, where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. Her parents went from slavery to sharecropping. They died when Walker was seven. She moved in with her older sister, but Walker's brother-in-law was so cruel, just to get away from him, she got married at 14. They had a daughter who Walker later named Alelia. Walker's husband died three years after her birth, so Walker and the little girl moved to St. Louis, where Walker's brothers lived. (laughs) 
Walker began attending her brother's church, that was a defining moment. The more middle-class, educated women of the church who began to give Sarah Breedlove, the poor, uneducated washerwoman, a vision of herself as something other than a person who was always going to be at the bottom of the list. What is also important at this moment, Walker is having hair and scalp issues. Most Americans, black or white, did not have indoor plumbing. And so this is, you know, didn't have indoor toilets, couldn't just turn on the faucet and jump in the shower. And that meant that hygiene was very different, personal hygiene. So people bathe maybe once a week and you might not wash your hair maybe once a month, maybe not at all during the winter. And so people had really horrible skin infections and scalp infections. Very few products were available for black hair. So people would mix things up. Yes, they would use lard or they use axle grease. Imagine having to use the fat from a pig in your hair. Walker married again, left him, then moved to Denver in 1905 with her daughter, Alelia, where Walker worked as a sales agent for a black woman who was making her own hair care products. Here in Denver, Walker marries her third husband, Charles Joseph Walker. At this point, she stops working for the other woman's company, ditches the name Sarah Breedlove, goes by Madam C.J. Walker, and names her company that, obviously a nod to her husband. There were other companies making black hair care products, but not all were safe. The companies were called like Kinkella and Ozona. Uh, and they were really, they were white-owned companies that were appealing to black women and really selling them a bill of goods. Many of those white-owned companies would take out ads in the black newspapers or on posters in black communities. And they would show before and after pictures really playing on the insecurities of black women. The before picture was a black woman who had splotchy skin, whose hair was unkempt. And the after picture was an idealized white woman who was the sort of the beauty standard of the day, the Gibson girl. Instead, Walker featured herself on ads and products. For a black woman to declare that my hair and my image and my dark skin is worthy and is something that should inspire you was revolutionary. I think one of the reasons that Madam Walker's legacy is lasting is because she was such a brilliant marketer. She understood the power of images. I think today she would certainly be on Instagram. Walker employed thousands of people. She empowered women to feel beautiful about their hair and gave them financial security at a time where most black women cooked or cleaned for a living. She also built her army of entrepreneurs to be civic focused. She gave prizes not just to the women who sold the most products, but to the women who had contributed the most to charity. As her empire grew, Walker's daughter, Alelia, realized they needed to be in Harlem. When she went to New York, she said, we need to be here because Harlem is, is on the verge of becoming the mecca for black politics and culture. At this point, Walker has divorced Charles, and in 1913, she purchased a townhouse on 136th Street. It becomes the New York headquarters. By being in New York, they were being written about by the national press, and they had such a presence uh, in the city that anybody who wanted to write about black people in business 
were writing about them. To understand what life was like in New York City, we connected with Dominique Jean-Louis. She's an associate curator of history exhibitions at the New York Historical Society. In those early years of the 20th century, we're talking like 1909, 1910, there's a burgeoning black real estate population. They say, hey, this is an area that's booming and we want black people to be able to live there. And while there's obviously a financial component to that, there's also a political one. That same time period is the absolute heart of the Jim Crow era where racial violence is terrorizing black communities in the South. African-American people needed a place to feel safe. And so providing housing in that area that was now accessible to the rest of the city in a brand new way was both a political statement and it was also a financial boon for black real estate developers. This was also peak Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall was New York City's political machine. It controlled city and state politics for nearly 200 years. Corruption was rampant. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And so if you didn't have the right friends or if you had the wrong friends, there are people in power who would make it very, very difficult for you to function, get the permits you needed to get, you know, make the hires you needed to make, whatever the case may be. You had to be in with the right people to get things done. To be clear, Dominique isn't saying Walker was involved with Tammany Hall, but during this time in New York City, there's a whole lot of people trying to leverage their power. Not only is it harder to be African-American for all the reasons that we still know today, between the entrenched racism, between the lack of access to generational wealth, between not having a broad network and connections to people in power, you also have a small group of people who are making very large and impactful decisions based on who they like, who they don't like, who advantages them, who doesn't. And so the business scene she would have entered into, especially, you know, as an outsider, she built her empire in the Midwest. Coming into New York City, it's actually really special and commendable that she was able to keep and maintain her business so successfully, given that New York was a very insular, contained and tightly managed city at that time point. That corruption impacted life. Walker had means, but most of Harlem did not. You had intense price gouging. So it was the case that you know, structural and residential racism made it such that Black families couldn't just move anywhere. They couldn't move into the Upper East Side. They couldn't move into, you know, the Irish part of town. So they would be forced to live in Harlem because those are the only landlords and management companies that would rent to them. Because some of those companies knew that they were stuck, they would gouge prices. In the early years of Harlem, people would be paying more to rent an apartment in Harlem than people were on the Upper East Side. Not because the housing was any better, but because people were trying to just very unfortunately squeeze more money into folks who already were at a disadvantage. Knowing that and what Black folks were still dealing with in the South and Midwest, Walker used her influence to fight for civil rights. There's such an important relationship between early Black civil rights and political participation early Black entrepreneurship, especially women like Madam C.J. Walker. And in 1918, she used New York City's first Black licensed architect to build a stunning 20,000 square foot home in Irvington, New York. Bundo says her great-great-grandmother built it to challenge the stereotypes of what a Black woman could do. She intentionally chose to build it 
in the wealthiest community in America. It was four or five miles away from John D. Rockefeller, a mile or so away from Jay Gould's home. And in this area where many other wealthy uh, white industrialists and robber barons lived. But she was still black. As she traveled, there were Jim Crow cars. There was discrimination when she tried to buy real estate. So there were lots of challenges. Challenges that inspired her to keep fighting for others from donating to the NAACP to sending a telegram to the president asking him to make lynching a federal crime. One of the things that I love about Madam Walker's story is that, yes, she loved furs. Yes, she loved fancy cars. She would be the first one to say that was important. But what is equally as important, if not more important, is that she was Black Lives Matter 1.0. She used her wealth and her influence and her network to make a difference in her community as a political activist, as a person who supported the anti-lynching movement, as a person who spoke truth to power. Coming up on Beyond Black History Month, we're taking a look at why there are so few Black-owned beauty shops. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Beyond Black History Month. I'm your host, Famie Redwood. Department stores usually only carry a small selection of black hair products. And honestly, it feels kind of othered because they're in a separate space or aisle labeled ethnic. So often black shoppers instead go to beauty supply stores in black neighborhoods. According to the Black-Owned Beauty Supply Association, 75% of these stores which cater to black shoppers are owned by Korean Americans. And within the remainder of that 25%, African-American women own an even smaller share. But how did America go from Madam C.J. Walker to black community members having so little stake in an industry largely supported by them? Especially considering after the Civil War, African-American businesses were growing. There were several thousand of them within two decades of abolition. In fact, historians call 1900 to 1930 the golden age of black business. But racism. Jim Crow laws made these businesses vulnerable to destruction, and the government wasn't exactly running to help. These businesses began declining in the 1940s, and systemic issues continued. You may be wondering, if these barriers exist for African Americans, how were other people of color, including immigrants, able to use small business ownership as a route to social mobility? I checked out data from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. It found African Americans go through the entrepreneurial process with lower levels 
levels of business capital resources when compared to some immigrants. And when I say capital, I mean more than money. This data points to human, social, and financial capital. So for example, looking at human capital, that's defined as the personal characteristics that help business owners succeed, like having owned a business or obtaining a college degree before immigrating to the U.S. To put this in a historical perspective, looking at the time period at which beauty supply stores started growing, according to Pew Research, in 1980, 34% of Korean immigrants had a bachelor's degree, compared to just 10% of African Americans. That's an example of the types of human capital this data is pointing to. To get the rest of the picture, we need to go back in time. For decades, wig and hair extensions largely came from Asia. At one point, hair was South Korea's number two export. In the 60s, Korean Americans were selling wigs door to door. That evolved into wig stores, which later became beauty supply stores. Simultaneously, black hair was an overlooked market. Large companies didn't want to invest, and white flight left a lot of empty storefronts. I was uh, a sales rep for a lot of uh, major companies. Sam Enan is the founder of the Black-Owned Beauty Supply Association association or BAPSA. He says all of this helped Korean Americans dominate that market but caused difficulties for African Americans. He says black entrepreneurs trying to get into the retail space have a hard time tapping into the distribution channels. Sometimes there are language barriers, but Sam says sometimes it's more than that. A similar complaint I got from others. If you're opening up a store and you're black, you need to get those products because the customers are coming in and asking for it because the demand has been so great. They won't sell or they sell it to you at a higher price or they make the uh, minimum so high you can't compete. I reached out to some of the country's largest distributors. Press zero for an operator. Hi, my name's Femi Redwood, Who and I'm calling from 1010 Wins. Media stories. Uh, okay, yeah, so then, yeah, there should definitely be someone then in the headquarters. A lot of companies. Hi, my name's Femi Redwood, and I'm a reporter over at 1010 Wins, but had no luck reaching anyone. Sam says his own experiences being shut out led him to create Bobsa in 2003 and its own hairline called You Go Girl. And I said, this is crazy. It didn't make any sense. So we were having a hair show in Oakland and uh, some of the beauty supply stores were there, black owned, and they were frustrated too. So we got together and said, well, why don't we start an association, try and help more stores open. Add to all of this the discrimination some black women experience while shopping at Korean-American-owned stores. While these problems are undeniably rooted in one of America's earliest sins, it doesn't make the pain any less for African-Americans, issues magnified when few beauty store workers are black. I said, why don't you hire black people that, that, that shop the store, you know, because he said because they steal. I mean, to tell me that, that, they, that we steal, you know. At the heart of these issues is white supremacy. Stereotypes like the model minority myth have been used to support stereotypes like the black criminality myth. And tensions between the two groups allows white supremacy to go unchecked. But there are those working for change, like New York Assemblyman Ron Kim. He says when incidents occur between the two communities, he works to bridge those gaps. In every incident, I was able to come in and broker a community event and talk about what the black community is feeling uh, toward uh, Asian American business owners and where they're coming from and vice versa. I also seize the opportunity to have intimate, private and, and open conversations with the Asian community about why 
there's been so much conflict going on. And at the core of it, when I turn to the Asian community, I actually pivot toward economic justice rather than racial tensions. And why I do that is because they need to understand where the Black community is coming from. They feel like many Asian small businesses come into Black neighborhoods, do business, make profits, make money, and they don't live and spend money locally, you know, and they don't circulate that money back into the local economy. The Queen's Democrat says while these conversations are uncomfortable, the audience is receptive and does more to give back, including hiring locally and fostering young talent. One instance was a 2020 partnership with Phil Beauty Supply and the nonprofit 100 Suits for 100 Men. But he says grants are needed to develop an economically resilient model that will help those feeling frustrated with a broken system. Even at a very young age, they see that it's so hard to achieve social mobility in a rigged economy. And unfortunately, historically, instead of pointing their frustration at people like me and other politicians who can set better policies to liberate the rigged economy, what they when they walk out their homes, they're seeing other entrepreneurs like Asian Americans who figured out how to enter their marketplace and make money. And oftentimes they take their anger out on them. And both sides are being pitted against each other. And and the more we walk back, connect the dots and talk as a community, how to open the markets up to be much more competitive and fair for local talents, I think both sides get to a much more positive outcome. He's hopeful for the future, as is Sam, who's been able to turn recently shuttered stores into opportunities. It started when the virus, you know, the virus hit. A lot of shopping centers closed. Over the past year, he's helped black entrepreneurs open 19 beauty supply stores. The majority are women. When Madam C.J. Walker discovered the combination of ingredients that would help those with hair and scalp issues, she turned it into a business for two reasons, upward mobility for her family and to serve other black women. It helped some feel good about their beauty, but it also gave some financial independence. What struck me the most researching this story is how many other black hair care entrepreneurs feel a similar kinship and in a way, a responsibility. Like Dr. Camille Howard Verovic, the Brooklyn dermatologist and mother is the founder of Girl Plus Hair. It's a hair care system made for when people wear protective styles. A protective style is a way black people do their hair to protect it from damage. For example, a sew-in weave is considered a protective style. The real hair is braided to the scalp, a hairnet is put over it, and hair extensions are sewn onto the braids. This style is worn for a few weeks, and because the real hair doesn't need to get flat ironed or curled during this period, it's being protected from heat damage. I'd like to see more brands out there. Dr. Howard got the idea back in 2013 when looking for a product that would allow her to wash her hair while wearing protective styles, but she couldn't find anything on store shelves. And so I thought to myself, no one really thought about how black women took care of their hair. Why no nozzle tip? Why was the shampoo so thick? How do I get these products to the base of the braid that's underneath this net while I had the sew and weave. She started counting how many other black women were wearing protective styles. Like, okay, she has a weave. Okay, she has box braids. She has crochet. And I used to think like, wow, just on my way to the train station, I saw so many women with protective styles in. 
Yet when I went to the local Rite Aid or local Walgreens, there was nothing in the aisle to help us properly wash and condition our hair while wearing these various styles. How could you create shampoos, conditioners, and all these sorts of hair products, but miss the very way we take care of our hair? It's like, why is it no one ever made a low viscosity shampoo with a nozzle tip to get to the base of the braid? Her husband became her business partner, and eventually they got a really big meeting. It was supposed to be a game changer, but it became a reminder of why her voice is so important. It was going to be this big distribution meeting and kind of like a big break, right? So you're super excited about it. And my husband, Joseph, he's tall, Caucasian, German guy. But here we are, husband and wife team, talking about this brand that I th- I created and it's for black women. So I am prepared to talk about the brand story and why these ingredients are important. And I practiced and practiced. And when she finished the presentation, one of the men in the room, instead of addressing her, the woman who created this product and gave the presentation, he instead addressed her white husband. I would say he looked past me and he looked to Joseph and he was like, okay, that's great. But whatever is in this bottle needs to cost less than a dollar. And in my mind... I said to myself, why would I put ingredients that cost less than a dollar in my product for my customers? Why would I do that? Why would I choose subpar ingredients for women who look like me? She says the meeting made her realize why black women need to be at certain tables. But it's also a reminder of how much of a baddie Madam CJ Walker was. I think what strikes me in her story is the amount of times that she's probably probably heard the word no as a black woman. No, this isn't going to work. No, people don't need this. We hear the word no very often as black founders. Girl Plus Hair is in many department stores and beauty supply shops. My name is Robin. Another hair care founder, Robin Palmer, who created Foxy Natural Hair Care in 2019. Everything is made from scratch. Some of the products are so natural, they need to be refrigerated. From Queens, she created this line because certain ingredients and in other products, like preservatives, didn't work for her texture. The company is still at its early stages, but it's already in one store in Queens. It can be discouraging, but I just feel like you have to keep pushing. That's what ties so many of these entrepreneurs together. They all want more. More black beauty store owners, more black distributors, more black brands. Opportunity and inclusivity. Hopeful for the day when black hair care products are not othered in the ethnic aisle. The other thing that really touched me in all these stories is how much of these decisions are impacted by the desire to help one's community. Acts of love inspired by Madam C.J. Walker's act of bravery. I definitely admire her. (laughs) The way she did it, how she did it, everything. What I do understand about her story is that there is this act of caring for your sisters, right? And perhaps on that level, uh, we have a connection because it's hard. It's hard to create products and talk about products for what people are still calling a niche.
Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our Beyond Black History Month series, you know what to do. Hit that subscribe button. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on the Odyssey app. Also, please rate and review our podcast. It helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month is a production of 1010 Wins and WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to our producer, Dempsey Pillot, our audio engineer, Andy Egan Thorpe. Our executive producer is Ivan Lee. The WCBS News Radio 880 manager is Tim Schaud. Ben Meverack is a 1010 Wins brand manager. And I'm Fami Redwood. Thanks for listening. is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 